Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Midas Touch podcast, Legal AF. If it's Saturday, if it's Sunday, you know what, Popokian? If it's the holidays, it is Legal AF. These other podcasters, they're sleeping. They're not doing new content right now, but the law does not sleep. The wheels of justice do not stop. And when it when it goes holiday time, Popak goes Christmas sweaters, polar bear style. We go Popak. we go hard to the hole. There's no best of legal AF. That wouldn't even make sense. None anyway. of that. That wouldn't that wouldn't make sense anyway. Who wants to hear old legal and political news? Nobody. Popak. So first, before we get into the law, tell all of our listeners and viewers about your polar bear sweater. Where did you get it? What is it inspired by? What made you decide to wear it today? Go. Okay. All right. So I don't normally wear Christmas sweaters, but I did see this one online. I'm not going to name the retailer. It's a nice, it's a nice retailer. It's a very comfortable sweater. It actually has a back to it. I'm not going to turn around and show anybody, but there's a back to it with the polar bears. I liked it. It goes well with jeans. I woke up this morning and I said, hey, we got to do this podcast tonight for Christmas weekend. Let me whip out the ski sweater. And here we are. Popak whipping out the polar bear sweaters for the holiday Midas touch. And he's turning around. Popak, for those listening, just did a 360 on us and showed us the back from a nice designer, which will remain nameless because we all know Popokian is humble. He's humble. He's not going to go there on the podcast. But Popak, <laughs> let's get into the law right away. And let's just start as we reflect on the year. And we've talked about cases. We've talked about federal judges, circuit court judges making very significant decisions on cases. But the appointment process, the nomination process is so incredibly vital. Frankly, one of the most important, important functions of the president, right, to nominate federal judges and for those judges to be appointed. And Biden has been incredible, A plus on the scorecard of putting in uh, diverse judges who will follow the law. He's appointed more judges by far than Donald Trump. I mean, Biden's appointed now 40 judges who have been nominated and appointed and got through their confirmation process. Um, I think, Popak, what was it? Like almost three quarters of that are women. 
oh, yeah. people from diverse backgrounds. 32 publicly. out of 40 are women. And it's not just, you know, former prosecutors who normally become judge. We're talking about voting rights lawyers. We're talking about public defenders. We're talking about civil rights lawyers. And so, Popak, why has Biden been so successful in making these appointments? What does it mean? And maybe even walk us through. It's kind of a bizarre process, kind of steeped in some traditions where it's also important that the senators agree with the process. And so sometimes you need to make sure you have two senators from the same party, even though that's not a formal rule, but it's more of a just maybe walk us through that process. So when we talk about judges, our listeners know what's up. Yeah. One of the reasons that Biden has been the most successful president in his first term, in his first year in office since Reagan, he matched Reagan in getting 40 lifetime appointment judges through the process, through the confirmation, nomination, confirmation process. 11 on the Court of Appeals, really, really important. 29 on the district court level. Zero on the US Supreme Court. He has to wait for an opening related to that. And we'll talk at the end of the segment about Breyer, the Breyer appointment. Contrast that 40 with 18 that Trump did uh, in his first year, Um, of course, He also got in his four years, three Supreme Court positions. The Court of Appeals, where Biden is focusing his efforts as well, is really, really important. Why? We focus on the show on the Supreme Court. Supreme Court takes and decides maybe 100 cases a year. I'm not saying they're not consequential. To our lives, they are. But the district courts of appeal that you and I have talked about at length, from the first district court of appeal to the 11th district court of appeal. I'm sorry, the 11 circuits and the district courts of appeal under them decide over 50,000 cases, five zero, 50,000 cases per year. That has a tremendous impact on federal jurisprudence, body of law that's being created. The next generation of Supreme Court justices come from these justices really, really important. And as you said, Ben, and then we'll talk about the confirmation process. Out of the 40 judges, 32 women, 27 are people of color, 15 of the 40 were formerly federal or state public defenders, meaning they come from the defense, uh, uh, the little people side, if you will, as opposed to corporate America. And The process, the reason why there's so many openings for Biden to take advantage of is because in uh, Trump's era, of course, he was trying to get his people through. But before that, Obama was sort of stymied in his ability to place as many judges as he could by Mitch McConnell. So the place where Biden has been placing the most judges are in Democratic-controlled states, where where both of the senators are Democrat. So New York and California and other places. He's not been successful yet in putting a judge where there is either a split or a Republican controlled Senate where the two seats for the senators are both Republican. He's about to do that in in the beginning of 2022 and we'll see the result on that. But there's been so many openings in democratic strongholds that he's been able to shove these justices through. He's got a lot more to do and 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 he will have time. I want people to have confidence in that. We're worried about the midterms in November 20, 
2022 and then and then January when when things happen and really change. But he has time between now, it's almost 11 months to get the remaining courts of appeal, circuit court judges, uh, district court judges that he wants put on the bench. And he's going to focus on that and ramp that up, I believe, in the new year to try to um, fill as many as he can, because if, if things go awry and we lose the midterms and we lose the House and the Senate, he's, he's going to have a very difficult time filling any more, any more seats, including U.S. Supreme Court. The process is that both sitting senators generally, as a matter of courtesy and protocol, have, the, have what's called the blue card ability or the right to block a judge that they don't like. Usually it's a judge of a, diff, it's a, judge of a different party. Biden may have to play some hardball while he still controls the Senate and the House, and he might have to override Republican senators to get judges appointed in those, in those circuits and in those district courts. We'll have to see how much appetite uh, Biden has for that. I think he has a lot of appetite for it, but that's going to be the process. But he's been fortunate so far in that he's been able to get this many judges through generally friendly Democratic Senator Senate-controlled states. Tell us about Justice Breyer. You teased the audience on that point, uh, whether Justice Breyer, there's been rumors that he's thinking about resigning. He's obviously, um, you know, older. How old is he now? Like in his 83. 80s? Yeah. And so what are your thoughts there? And maybe walk us through yeah. if in 2022, we think there may be a nomination of a Supreme Court justice. By yeah. Him. The problem is Breyer has picked his his federal clerks for the coming term. And um, he is he has made it clear that he's not going to get pushed out the door, that he feels he still has a vital and a viable remaining tenure on the Supreme Court. Now, I'll tell you, he took some pot shots, and I think they were not really well-deserved based on his oral argument questions during the abortion Texas 8 um, oral argument a month ago, you know, that he wasn't on his game, that he wasn't sharp. I'm not sure that's totally fair. But if Breyer is going to do what we believe is the right thing, which is to re resign while Biden still has the opportunity to nominate and confirm. He would have to really do it in the first half of the year because Mitch McConnell and other Republicans have already said that as they approach the midterms, they're gonna do everything they can not to confirm a Supreme Court justice, even, the, even though the president has two more years left on his term. Now, is it unprecedented? Yes. Is it a change in the policy that even Mitch McConnell established with Obama in his waning waning time? Yes. Is it completely uh, a flip from what they did with Amy Coney Barrett in the last 35 days of the Trump administration after, after it was clear that Biden had won the election? Yes. But we have to expect that they're going to do it. So Breyer, if he's going to do the right patriotic thing that people think he should do, he's going to have to resign like really soon to give their, so that there would be no, uh, no real straight-faced argument. And, it, and while we still control the Senate, and I use that term in quotes because of, of the mansion cinema problem, but while we, while we still control the Senate, 
um, you know, we're going to have to hope that Breyer does the right thing and resigns. If he doesn't, and look, you know, with all due respect to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's sacred memory, she didn't resign either. And she had had like three bouts of cancer and she died during a Republican administration. So this is not unusual. I don't want to blame Breyer any more than other justices, Democrat or, uh, you know, Democratic appointed or, or Republican appointed. So we'll have to see. But I want to get your opinion. I once asked you, do you think Roberts resigns to allow Biden to have the chief justice pick? You said no way. What do you think about Breyer? No way, no way as well. You know, it's the problem with these lifetime appointments, you know, that you have someone whose whole identity is in, in, enraptured by being a Supreme Court judge. It's everything that they do. It's who they are. And also people don't like to think of their own mortality in that way, even when they're confronted with it, especially people who feel that they have the vitality to continue. You know, I think Breyer looks at the way his questions went down and his ability to decide these cases and say, I want to do this until the day I die. You know, lots of people who love the law feel that way. I know lots of trial lawyers, like not lots of trial lawyers, but real trial lawyers who are like the way I want to go out is giving a closing argument, you know, on a, you know, on a high profile case, basically, you know, in front of the jury, you know, as a verdict's about to be read. And a lot of people, their whole life and identity is attached to it. Yeah. But also, you need to take a step back. Um, and you need to think about the country, you need to think about um, that it's not just about your life and your legacy can be significantly tainted by um, yeah. you, you not doing the right thing. One other point, though, Popak, about diversity um, on the bench. And I think it's highlighted actually by a juxtaposition of two cases that I'll just touch very briefly on. There's the case in the prosecution of Kim Potter. Um, and for those who don't know, Kim Potter's the former Minnesota police officer. She drew a gun instead of a taser and fatally shot Duante Wright during a traffic stop. And this past week, she was found guilty of first and second degree manslaughter um, in the death of Duante Wright, the murder of Duante Wright. Um, and the judge in that case, Regina Chu, what a juxtaposition to the judge in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Judge Bruce Schroeder, you saw no antics. You, she didn't make the trial about herself. I didn't whatsoever. even know who the judge was until you just said her name. And exactly the way it should be. It's like when you go to a basketball game, you shouldn't know who the referee is, right? The referee should just blow the whistle. And, you know, the same way with an umpire, you shouldn't know the name of the umpire at the end of the day. The umpire shouldn't upstage the actual game. And, that was a Judge Bruce Schroeder, but that's why having diversity, other points of views than just old white men, you know, is helpful. Yeah, and your, your comment about Breyer, I think, is right on. Nobody wants to be the ex-pope. You know, we, there is two popes right now. <laughs> For anybody that's seen the movie a few years ago, Benedict is still rattling away somewhere, you know, in, in near Vatican City in an apartment. But when was the last time you thought about him? Nobody wants to be the ex-living a U.S. Supreme Court justice and lose all the trappings of office. And I, I think you're right about that. And frankly, no president ever makes that a litmus test. I don't think there's ever been a conversation in a White House with a potential candidate where they said, listen, if it comes down to it and you're pushing 80 and there's a Democrat in office or somebody in your same party and we need you to resign, will you? That, that conversation never happened for any, for any president. 
Opak, let's go to New York, where actually you are based. And I want to talk about this lawsuit, federal case in, uh, in Manhattan District Court um, against Tish James over her uh, enforcement of a New York statute that would hold uh, gun manufacturers civilly liable and responsible if the gun is used for unlawful purposes or crime. The gun manufacturer lobby filed this lawsuit against Tish James, citing a law that's called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, a federal law which provides broad and sweeping immunity to gun manufacturers for um, uh, from civil liability arising out of the use of um, those weapons. And here, I think what Tish James is looking at is kind of the structure that you had in SB8 and saying, if you can have those structures in, um, in New York in a civil liability context, why can't we apply that to gun manufacturers? Of course, gun manufacturers sued. Tell us a little bit about this case, Popak. And what yeah, it's case. a little different than the bounty laws that have been, I'm not saying that New York is not going to try a bounty law that you and I talked about last podcast, but this one's a little bit different. This, this law, let's start with the law and then we'll, then we'll move to the lawsuit. The law that was passed by the Democratic controlled New York's Assembly and Senate which is Senate Bill 7196, is an amendment to an existing set of laws on New York's books for public nuisance. And it was in the waning days, literally like the last two weeks of the Cuomo administration. Remember him? Remember Mar uh, Governor Cuomo, Mario Cuomo's son? Yeah, so he signed a bunch of things at the end and some of them were good. And, and this is the law that he, that he signed that was delivered to him by the Senate sponsorship, which makes it a public nuisance civil liability, meaning you and I and the average citizen can sue and states can sue under public, under public nuisance, uh, uh, manufacturers of guns, distributors of guns, if those guns end up contributing and they, and they have knowledge that those guns are contributing to violent crime, murder rate increase in the city and create a public nuisance, then civil liability is possible and you can sue those manufacturers directly. The problem with that, frankly, and we're gonna see it eventually get to the Supreme Court, who is a big believer in the Second Amendment, is that there is, as you noted on the books since 2005, a law which is called the PLCAA, the, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which was a negotiated, basically, uh, act that a, a Democratic administration along with Congress enacted to shield liability for distributors and manufacturers of guns as long as they didn't take any affirmative steps to promote um, the misuse or mishandling of guns. So it protected gun manufacturers who were frankly all gonna go bankrupt if they didn't have this protection. And you know there was a public policy that was made in 2005 that you know we're going to protect gun manufacturers. Now our listeners and followers might be saying or being aghast, oh my God, that law's on the books. Yeah, that's one of the purposes of this podcast to let you know that it's we don't just fight over the Second Amendment. There are laws on the books of, of Congress of this country, federal law that gives immunization and protection to gun manufacturers and distributors. 
The question is, has New York uh, thread the needle and found a lane in between the federal law and public nuisance law? Or do we have a federal preemption problem? And we've talked about preemption in the past, but a quick kind of tutorial on it. If there is a federal body of law enacted by Congress and it's their intention based on congressional power, in this case, the Commerce Clause of the US Constitution, where the federal legislators, Congress, alone are empowered to regulate in the areas of interstate commerce. Guns flowing through the country is interstate commerce. Only the federal government and not each individual state can regulate in that area. And if, the, if Congress has manifested its intention to regulate in this area, they completely oust, it's called ouster, they oust the state regulators, the uh, state law, over the same overlapping subject matter. So the question is, has the federal government and Congress manifested an intention to completely regulate in the area of gun distribution and gun sales so that a public nuisance law passed and maintained by a state violates the US Constitution, the Commerce Clause, and in this case, a federal law, uh, which, which we just talked about, which is the um, Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. That is the fundamental question. So you have 14 manufacturers of handguns and weaponry, along with a, um, you know, one of these public interest groups that supports sports and gaming, I mean, sports and guns and all of that, who have brought the lawsuit in the Southern District of New York, we're going to get a ruling. They're going to move on a preliminary injunction standard to try to get this law to not be enforced by, in this case, the Attorney General, Letitia James's office, and anybody else. And a federal judge is going to make an initial ruling. It's going to go to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'm telling you, it's going to end up, I'm sure, on a 2022 episode of Legal AF, because the Supreme Court is going to take it up and answer the question once and for all, can a state regulate this way in the area of public nuisance and guns or not? Answer this question once and for all, Popak. Are you ready for a doctor-guided metabolic reset? Listen, I, I wake up in the morning thinking I don't have enough doctor-guided metabolic um, you know, products in my life. So tell me this, about this one. This podcast is brought to you by Calibrate. And we all know that traditional diets don't work because you can't fight your biology with willpower. And as we finish that Thanksgiving time period, as we approach the holidays, and we're in the holidays, you know, the New Year's, it's been, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, lots of great food, just eating. I'm eating a lot, Popak. I need to deal with, need to deal with that. You're That's wearing a lot, sweatshirts, <laughs> a lot of sweatshirts, Ben. A lot of sweatshirts. In 2022, but, but yeah, but you don't even need the sweatshirts. What I think you need is Calibrate. See, Calibrate is different. It's a comprehensive doctor-guided metabolic reset that promotes sustainable results through lifestyle changes. And it works because it combines doctor prescribed FDA approved medication paired with lifestyle changes to improve metabolic health. It's comprehensive, it's fully integrated, and it's a fully integrated program combining classes and one-on-one -on -one video coaching, in-app tracking, and a community of members just like you, plus medical care, including a video doctor visit 
calibrates earliest members, Popak, they lost an average of 14% of their body weight, exceeding the 10% average weight results seen in clinical trials. And over 20 years of research shows that a combination of GLP-1 medication and coaching can improve metabolic health and drive long-term sustainable weight loss. So Popak, it's very easy to fit, calibrate into your busy schedule. You check in with the app as often or as little you like, and your goals are personalized. So it's the full 360 degrees here of different types of ways you can address weight loss. Your weight doesn't reflect your willpower. For 2022, get back in control with Calibrate. Get $50 off the one-year metabolic reset when you use promo code LEGALAF at joincalibrate.com. That's $50 off. That's a big one. $50 off when you use code LEGALAF at join, J-O-I-N, calibrate, C-A-L-I-B-R-A-T-E dot Com. Make sure you go to joincalibrate.com and use that code legal AF. Popak, let's do some updates. Updates. We got updates. Oh, I, I haven't even that. done. I missed the, the jingle. jingle. You missed the jingle, but what I don't miss is the January 6th committee giving us good updates as they move ever closer to holding individuals accountable. Let's be clear, though, what January 6th committee can do or not do. It's not a law enforcement agency. The January 6th committee cannot prosecute anybody. The January 6th committee cannot lock people up. The January 6th committee can make referrals is what it can do. And Popak, tell us a bit about criminal referrals coming from the Jan 6th committee. I think so. I think so. Yeah, let's give a quick score scorecard on Jan 6th committee, and then I'm going to talk about my view, I think your view about the role of the Department of Justice sort of sitting and drafting, to use a bike racing term, Peloton term, drafting behind uh, the Jan 6 committee. You have a committee that's been duly constituted, properly constituted by the US Congress, whose sole function is to look into the Jan 6 insurrection, root causes, why it happened, how it happened, before, during, and the immediate aftermath, and then to recommend laws to the rest of Congress to make sure that that doesn't happen again, that a president doesn't barrel through all of the guardrails of democracy and find ways to put new laws on the books to prevent the next maniacal Donald Trump-like uh, fascist <laughs> president. That's their role. That's what Congresses are supposed to do. Um, I found it fascinating in a later segment, we'll talk about Trump's lawsuit against the production of the uh, National Archive to the Jan 6 committee, the records there, the argument that they made to the US Supreme Court, which we'll talk about a couple segments from now, they actually said, it's not the role of a congressional committee to do a case study or to rifle through the, the papers of the ex-president. That's exactly the opposite of, of the proper position. It is the role of, of a special select committee of the US Congress to look into the root causes of January 6th, the bloodiest insurrection at the nation's capital since the War of 1812. Now, what have they accomplished? And then I, I wanna keep parallel to that, that what the Department of Justice is doing with their eyes and ears and their other senses in watching the Jan 6 committee's work. Let's first start 
with the wood that they're chopping? What wood have they accomplished in a 10 months or so of the Gen 6 committee? They have had over 300 witnesses come forward and give testimony. They have 30,000 pages of documentation, including 9,000 from Meadows, which includes his 68 page PowerPoint about how to overthrow a government. They have all of that. They have 40 four zero investigators working round the clock, nonstop, like today, the way you and I are. There's no holidays at the Jan 6 committee working round the clock. Now, you were accurate. You were right, as always, in identifying the limitations of their powers and what they're doing and what they're not doing. Well, here's what the Department of Justice, I believe, and others believe that they are doing. Because it is a crime to lie or mislead or give a false statement to Congress, I believe the Department of Justice is letting this process go without interference, understanding that they are the highest law enforcement agency in the land, that if somebody lies to Congress, misleads them, gives a false statement in this process, put it on the board for the Department of Justice for another crime. They don't have to do a parallel investigation, which will lead to more people invoking the Fifth Amendment against uh, uh, self-incrimination. They're sitting back, my view, Popakian view, and allowing the Jan 6 committee to do its work. And what has happened as a result? 300 people have come forward, not asserted the Fifth Amendment, and given accurate testimony. They're getting convictions, and we'll talk about them in the next segment, of Jan 6 organizers and Proud Boys. They just got their first conviction of a Proud Boy. And so the Department of Justice is doing its thing, prosecuting 700 people in courts of law. But in terms of the investigation, they are better off, I submit, to allow the Jan 6 committee to do its work, to get its witness testimony down on paper, to get its documents in, and then they can gather that information, a direct conduit from the Jan 6 committee to the Department of Justice. And anybody that's lied to the Jan 6 committee, woe be them when the Department of Justice starts and, can, and takes it from there. Now, they can also make the Jan 6 committee a referral. And there's now talk in the last two weeks, and including Republican members of that committee, including Liz Cheney, that perhaps wire fraud has been committed by people using the big lie to line their pockets with fundraising dollars. The, the RNC alone raised tens of millions of dollars with the big lie. Trump has, Alex Jones has, Sidney Powell has. These could all be, if that's a fraud, using instrumentalities of the mail service or internet or phone, phone banks, that's wire fraud. That's how most criminals in the white collar arena are brought down. It's usually a one count wire fraud, one count mail fraud, maybe a conspiracy uh, theory. The second crime that the Jan 6 committee is looking into whether there's been a violation and a referral to the Department of Justice is obstruction. You and I have talked about it. That is the count that's got 20 years of a maximum penalty if you obstruct a process of Congress, in this case, the certification of the election. 
Now, who cares about a referral from Congress? People will say, Merrick Garland, Department of Justice, they can do it all without. But I think he is being, and his department is being very respectful, appropriately so, because you get more flies with honey. You're getting more information through the Jan 6 committee, which can then get turned over to the Department of Justice, than the Department of Justice trying to replicate the investigation on its own. Ben, thoughts? My thought is that the January 6th committee is doing exactly what it needs to do. And it's so telling that all of the defendants in this who are clearly co-conspirators in the, in the underlying acts are basically adopting each other's exact same tactics, suing this January 6th committee, calling it illegitimate, freaking out about their cell phone records being taken. But the January 6th committee is moving methodically um, and building on top of, and we're gonna talk about this, I think with the what the DOJ is doing also. And this is an overall legal strategy that we utilize in our cases as civil litigators. Governments use it as prosecutors though, is you don't basically start by fishing for the whale. You don't take your little fishing pole and put it in and hope you're gonna catch a whale. That's just not what you do. You have to basically start with the minnows and then you move up to the, you know, to the sea bass and then you move up to the dolphins. But do you, but do you, you think the Department of Justice is, is gonna use the Gen 6 work rather than replicate it? I think that they're going to rely on it. I think right. they're getting insight from Jan 6 that they couldn't otherwise get right. as, as quickly. Through the Jan 6th process, um, you have kind of quicker turnarounds on subpoenas, right. the phone records. And so I, I think they're gonna be working in a symbiotic way, Agreed. but ultimately I think that the DOJ, as a lot of the articles point out, are well-equipped to deal, you know, to deal with these matters if you, on their own. But if you're, I, I agree, but you know, there's all this Twitterverse nonsense, noise about, well, there's no evidence that Merrick Garland is actually doing that wrong. Then you don't understand the interplay or the symbiosis, as you said, between the criminal justice system when there's a parallel civil investigation going on. If they want to bigfoot the civil investigation, the Department of Justice, it would just be a bull in a china shop. They would blow out the, the, the congressional investigation. They would say, we're taking charge. We're doing the criminal investigation. And every one of those witnesses that, that was called before the Department of Justice, I mean, before the, the Jan 6 committee, would throw up their hands and say, Fifth Amendment, we don't, we're being prosecuted. We're, being, we're targets. We're witnesses. We can't cooperate with Jan 6. But by allowing the Jan 6 committee to go first, they allowed them to go get 300 interviews, get tens of thousands of pages of documents, and the Department of Justice is the beneficiary of all that. That is what's happening. And look what's happening with the January 6th prosecutions. I know a lot of legal AFers were very frustrated about some of the light sentences that were being handed down. Quite frankly, I was frustrated in the light sentences that were being handed down. But um, uh, again, this week we have one of the January 6th insurrectionists getting nearly four years in prison for assaulting a cop. And 
We talked about last week, Robert Palmer receiving a 63-month sentence last week. And now we have Devlin Thompson of Seattle, who was sentenced to 46 months in prison on Monday after pleading guilty to assaulting an officer with a dangerous weapon. And so we are seeing more serious like the clown show, the QAnon shaman, you know, all of those yeah. people, um, you know, they got sentences. Um, but, you know, I, I think the government was like, we have to make sure our resources are target on the people as well who are engaged in assaultive conduct. By the way, yeah. I think the lower level people should have still been thrown away. But here's the one thing, Popa. Good. I was going to say, good. You, you go first. One of the defenses of this Devlin Thompson was that um, he's autistic. He's autistic. His understanding of the events was severely impacted and distorted by his diagnosed condition of autism spectrum disorder. And then the response to that was autism is not and should not be an excuse for bad behavior. Um, and I, I, th I think Popak, that we just see that increasingly that whenever these right-wing GQPers get caught, they blame mental illness, they try to claim religious exemptions. We just see it over and over again, yeah. excuse not for excuse. Yeah, the, the, um, the most recent, um, as they move up the, the chain of uh, bad people, the most recent sentencings prove your point. You, you don't do it the other way around, just to make it clear. You don't throw you know, the person who got through the barricade, wandered around and smoked a joint in the Senate chambers, you don't give that person 10 years. You wanna to try to get, as you said, the minnows and the guppies to turn on the whales and to give additional information and cooperate. So you don't just say, we don't wanna to talk to you. We're going for four years in prison with you and, and cut off all communication. If you're a good prosecutor, you're going to, sit that person down for a series of interviews and encourage them to cooperate so that at this time of sentencing, the government can say they took responsibility and they cooperated. We have leads, we have names, we have additional pieces of information, we have their cell phone all voluntarily given, and therefore we're going for a little bit lower end of the spectrum um, than on the, on the higher end. If you do it the other way around, if you just put everybody in the gulag for 20 years, you're never gonna get the information that you need to build the case against the real bad people, the predator organizers at the very, very top. And the one thing that you and I will watch is the sentencing for the proud boy from Syracuse, New York, the first proud boy to, be, to um, plead guilty without a trial to both conspiracy and obstruction, which is the, you know, that's the home run count for the prosecutors, 20 years away for obstruction. They got this proud boy who I read the Department of Justice press release on him. He did not hit or attack any law enforcement. He, he was present at various places, the portico, the West Terrace. He went through barricades, he lowered barricades. He's wandered around for three or four hours and there were two other guys that were with him, but he did not like whip a fire extinguisher at somebody's head or tase or use bear spray on a Capitol police officer. And he just pled guilty to a, to a 20 year count potentially of obstruction. I am sure when he is sentenced now, and I read it's gonna be in March, between January and March, 
He's going to have a whole lot of interviews with the FBI, the Department of Justice, about what he knows about the Proud Boys, their role in organizing, and the links or connections between the White House, the Trump campaign, and the Jans and that Jan 6th day. And we might see a lower sentence for that guy because he came in first. You, you get a benefit in the criminal justice system if you come in first, plead guilty, and start cooperating. And that's to my view, Ben, what do you think? Why did he plead guilty so quickly uh, with a sentencing put off till March? Well, he sees the writing on the walls. I'm sure the government wanted to get additional information from him. He probably proffered to the government and said, I'll give you lots of good information as well. And, you know, in, 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 uh, in order to get leniency at the end of the day, that's kind of what, yep. what the way these deals go down and work. Well, they but got their first want, proud boy. Right. And, and I also just want to say, though, you know, all of these lawsuits that are being filed, um, whether it's by Alex Jones or Michael Flynn or um, Scott Perry, who hasn't filed a lawsuit, but probably will if he's ultimately subpoenaed yeah. for calling the January 6th committee illegitimate. It, it's not illegitimate. These lawsuits are not going to prevail. Like, And here's kind of a common thread with these lawsuits that are filed by GQPers. They don't even have the procedurally right like <laughs> posture in them. I mean, we're going to talk about it in a little bit, Popak, but like the lawsuit filed by the Republican governor in Oklahoma against vaccine mandates relating to the National Guards yeah. cited the wrong mandate. It right. cited the general federal employee mandate, not the military mandate. Imagine that you are a lawyer. You are working with the government, in this case, a state government of Oklahoma. You have all the resources in the wall in the world to file this lawsuit. And literally your lawsuit is based on the wrong law. You aren't even citing the but, correct but law. But we've again, seen this time and time again. We're going to talk about today in in uh, in in well, both for Flynn and for every time there's a loss, Giuliani, Flynn, Trump of the National Archive. Oklahoma citing the wrong statute. It's either they cite the wrong law or they don't submit the fundamental affidavit under oath because they don't want to, to support their application for injunctive relief. How many times have you and I talked on this podcast about the fact that whether it, like I said, Flynn, Giuliani and Trump all got their cases tossed because they didn't even submit a fundamental affidavit to support the allegations of their suit. And then they blame the issue on standing like, yeah, we had all of the merits of the case, but we didn't even have standing to sue. Like not having standing is even worse than the, mer than the merits. Like you weren't even the right person to even bring the claim in the first place on the standing. But Popak, you referenced Michael Flynn in Flynn's lawsuit against the January 6th committee that he had just filed. Um, and he's filed for a temporary restraining order without even giving what's called like ex parte notice or notice at all whatsoever for uh, Nancy Pelosi. He sued Nancy Pelosi. I'm not sure why he sued her, but the January 6th committee, you know, and, and basically the court was like, we don't even know what this lawsuit is. Like, what wh what are you filing? You know, why is this an ex parte application? Why are you seeking a you're, temporary restraining order? You're talking about Middle District of Florida within one yep. day after he filed Mary Scriven, Judge Scriven, who is a um, who was an appointee by Bush, actually, uh, W. 
<laughs> she said in a five-page order, you, you had a fundamental obligation, and your lawyer did, to support your motion for injunctive relief with an affidavit. You don't even have the affidavit denied without prejudice. You can like refile if you want. But, you know, look, I, I took a scorecard or I, I think we, I think CNN did a good job of doing a scorecard. So there's been, there are eight current cases against the Gen 6 committee's subpoena power that are going on. A, not only a district court in, the, in one of the most prestigious federal court courthouses in the country, the DC circuit, not only is every judge there found that the Jan 6 committee has the authority um, and as a legitimate body to, to wage this investigation, but even the, court, even the court of appeals for the DC circuit. So every judge who has faced the issue, and we'll have to hear from the US Supreme Court, but every federal judge worth its salt has said that this is a proper exercise of legislative authority and it's a duly constituted body, the Jan 6 committee, and stop arguing that it's not yet. Trump against the National Archive, Meadows against Verizon, Cleta Mitchell, who used to be a lawyer, a partner at a major law firm, has sued AT&T to stop a subpoena for her records. Alex Jones has sued to stop the Jan 6 subpoena. He's going to lose that. Ali Alexander suing against Verizon subpoena. John Eastman against the Verizon subpoena. Amy Harris against the Verizon subpoena. This is all delay, 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 because all of it is nonsense. None of it is going to prevail. The Jan 6 committee is going to get these records from these, from these carriers like Verizon and AT&T, and they're going to finish their work. And the one heartening thing, Christmas gift that I read today, Ben, I don't know if you saw this, the Jan 6 committee is on record as saying they believe they're going to give a, a preliminary report with video evidence and everything else to the American public sometime in January, early February. Well, let's keep following that. Popak, any other final comments about Jan 6th as we move to updates regarding vaccine mandate or testing protocols and that working its way through the Supreme Court? Popak, anything else in the January 6th? No, I think we've covered, I think we've uh, covered Jan 6th. We can move on to vax mandates and state versus federal and where the Supreme Court is on it. I love it. Before doing that, this podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. Better help. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? We all get down sometimes. We all have very complicated situations, myself included, and it's helpful to speak to an actual professional therapist in a secure fashion. That's why I use BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And that match can happen in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. This is not self-help. This is professional therapy done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log on to your account anytime and send a message to your therapist, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't even have to sit in waiting rooms if you don't like to do that. 
BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit their website, read their testimonials. They'll all be like me who says they love BetterHelp. And then visit betterhelp.com slash legal AF. That's better H-E-L-P and join over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Now, here it comes. Special offer to Legal AF listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash legal AF. That's betterhelp.com slash legal AF. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Popak, over to you on vaccine mandates. Speaking of better help, so the vaccine scorecard, I'm doing scorecards today, is very interesting because the, the Supreme Court of the United States has consistently over the past year, um, they have upheld and been okay when state and universities have implemented mandates. Time and time again, whether it's New York, uh, whether it's um, Rhode Island, whether it's Indiana University, the sitting or the current composition of the US Supreme Court, even with the supermajority right wing, is okay with states mandating vaccines. They have also been okay just to kind of move one toe over to the federal side. They've even been okay when the Transportation Safety Administration, the TSA, when there was a challenge to them uh, requiring uh, and, the, and the FAA requiring masks on airlines, Roberts serving in a just, Chief Justice Roberts serving in his role as the duty judge for the DC circuit, rejected an, a, a, an, an emergency appeal to uh, take away that federal right. So why are there still lawsuits going on? Well, as we talked about last week, the sixth circuit ruled on the OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the OSHA rulemaking that Biden wanted for large employers of over 100 employees, mandating that they vaccinate, that they, they mandating that they vaccinate or employees vaccinate or are tested regularly, was upheld. That mandate was upheld by the Sixth Circuit, which was great. But another mandate through Health and Human Services, requiring federal workers in federal healthcare facilities be vaccinated was uh, enjoined or banned or barred by another circuit court. So the Supreme Court has decided in its infinite wisdom 
to bring both cases together and bring them up for full briefing on a fast track and oral argument to take place on the 7th of January. I guess they were tied up on the 6th of January, so they're gonna do it on the 7th of January. Now, is this unusual? It is. Roberts could have rejected the appeals outright in what we've referred to in the past as a shadow docket. He has the right to do that, or he can refer it over to the full Supreme Court if they wanna do other procedures. He and the others have decided that because of the importance, I believe, of the vaccine mandate and the criticism that they have gotten for doing shadow dockets have decided that they're gonna not only do full briefing on a very fast track, but they're also going to do oral argument that the public can listen to. I think that's a reaction to all of the criticism in 2021 about shadow dockets and one-line rejections of, of uh, laws you know, SB8 being left in place with a three-line order, I think now they're like, all right, let, let's do full briefing and oral argument on a fast track. So we're going to have a determination, not at the day of oral argument, but many, some months later, about whether the Biden administration, through both OSHA rulemaking and HHS rulemaking, can mandate vaccine. My gut is they're going to find, as long as the rulemaking was proper under the Administrative Procedures Act and delegation of authority by Congress, they're going to find that those mandates are, are proper. But we don't know until oral argument. Now, the interesting thing I want to get your take on is that one of the mandates, the large employer mandate, is set to take place on the 10th of January. The oral arguments on the 7th of January. What do you think the court does? I think you're going to get a quick ruling from the court. I mean, it is unusual to see them even taking oral argument in that way. It's interesting to note, as you just did, that um, that they're even holding an oral argument and they seem very reactive to how critical the public has been of shadow dockets. And when you talk about dissents um, and sometimes the importance of them, you know, let's remember there are some great um, Sotomayor dissents, there are great Kagan dissents referring to the shadow docket and how that has become a, a frankly uh, unconstitutional um, force that really hadn't been considered in how the Supreme Court even functions um, to overrule precedent and to make these kind of rulings instead of having full oral argument. So what I would expect to see is that it will obviously be fully briefed. I think that you're not going to get a long ruling um, that's going to be 60, 70, 80 pages. I think, you know, a lot of these shadow docket rulings are often very short, um, a page, a page and a half. I think they'll listen to the oral argument. I think we'll generally know where they stand. And I think before the 10th, they'll do something. And I'd also be interested to know, and I don't know if they have any authority um, uh, to do anything, Popak, with respect to the date or deadline, or if the government will come in and basically say, you know, we'll give an extra 10-day grace period. Yeah, I think that's what they'll do. I think, I think you're right. I think the, the Biden administration will take the pressure off and will roll off the uh, mandate. 
But with Omicron, it's hard to tell. I mean, things have gone three weeks ago. You and I didn't know Omicron from, you know, hole in the ground. And now it's all you and I can think about um, and what's going on in New York with the numbers. But it, that may, you know, maybe they want just a fast ruling from the um, hopefully a fast ruling in favor of of the mandates. But it's interesting, even though these cases are up at the Supreme Court, there's still stuff going on at the lower court. You have Gorsuch, who's in charge of the circuit that's that New Mexico is in, um, just in a shadow docket, one line order, kept in place the New Mexico state vaccine mandate for public workers of New Mexico. Uh, and you know, did not refer it to the full body of the Supreme Court, made the decision as he's allowed to do on his own and rejected the appeal. So again, if, if that is a window into the thinking of even the more conservative justices, they seem to be okay with vaccine mandates. It's gonna come down to whether they find that the agency that made the rule, we've talked about agency rulemaking, whether it was the rent uh, eviction, uh, moratorium. There, there has to be a nexus, a logical nexus between the language that empowers the agency to issue the rule and the rule that's been issued. Otherwise, it's improper delegation and it's improper rulemaking. That is that esoteric issue, as boring as it sounds, is going to be the heart of the oral argument when it happens and everybody can listen to it on the 7th of January. And the other suit that's fascinating is that there's a group of Navy SEALs, which are really just being frankly prostituted by a conservative justice center that wanted to bring this lawsuit. And the SEALs, as tough of badasses as they are, are claiming on religious grounds that some of them don't wanna get vaccinated. So that has been filed in, uh, in Texas, in Fort Worth, Texas, before a, uh, a judge who I believe was appointed by Reagan. And that's gonna, there's actually oral argument then on Monday on the injunction hearing and 47 sitting members of Congress, including Ted Cruz, have filed amicus briefs in favor of the Navy SEALs being able to use a religious exemption and the first amendment religious freedom to avoid being vaccinated. In an organization, Army, Navy, Marines, um, Space Force, uh, Coast Guard, where 95% or more of the people in those branches are double vaccinated or fully vaccinated. Popak, we're going to be, of course, following those cases. And I mean, my own prediction is that the um, the vaccine mandates and testing protocols, I think, are going to be upheld by the Supreme Court. Um, I think given the Supreme Court are, um, oh, this, is what, this is how dimly I think of all of our processes, um, because they are lifetime appointees and want to live longer, and it, and it sounds so basic, um, and they don't have to deal with the political pressure of what their GQP base is, if they could be voted out by their base, they would probably have the spine of Death Santos and basically stutter and mumble when asked if he's received a booster or if he intends to get a booster. But because they're lifetime appointees, because 
what they care about selfishly is themselves. Yeah. I think they want these vaccine mandates in place because like behind closed doors, Death Santis is getting vaccinated. Ted Cruz is getting vaccinated. All of these people are getting vaccinated and they're laughing at all of the people they are misleading with this anti-vax yeah. nonsense. But, but in a cynical fashion, as you can see it, what the right-wing conservatives who are leading these cases are trying to set up is a conflict in the minds of these Supreme Court justices between the religious freedom and the vaccine mandate. So they're trying to put them on an acute horns of a dilemma because we know how they feel about religious freedom as, is, as has been expressed time and time again for cases this term and last term, especially with the new supermajority right wing. So of course, that is, that is the acute point that the lawsuits are angling for. They're, they're trying to find out the limits of what the Supreme Court is willing to do, even in the face of religious freedom. But I think they've got a problem because if you remember one of our first podcasts, 30 episodes ago, if you can believe it, was reporting on Amy Coney Barrett, practicing Catholic, former member of the faculty of the University of Notre Dame Law School, finding that Indiana University students had to get vaccinated, even if they had religious objection. Well, you know, when I think it comes down to like, we, we could go into all of all of the aspects of it. But as far as I know, I, there's nothing in Catholicism that is anti-vax. And so I do think that an Amy Coney Barrett looks at even looking at it from a religious doctrinal sense, yeah. and kind of recognizes that the use of religion in this fashion to justify anti-vax uh, ideology, though, is actually a perversion of the religion. Yeah, it's That's not actually, perversion. it's not a religion thing. And it actually, it actually denigrates the, relig the re actual religious arguments most, in most, other areas. Most mainstream churches in every faith, and if you're of a Christian faith, what would Jesus do? He'd get boosted. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and, and to see people make the phony religious claims and like if there were actually genuine religious claims that are verifiable doctrinally, this exists for a long time and this has always been your views and your values. Same thing with your health. I mean, if at the end of the day, the vaccine and a medical doctor is saying that the vaccine can actually harm you um, and can cause these types of reactions given very, very, very unique circumstances, which conflicts with all of the literature that's out there. But I could see there being circumstances. And I've heard of circumstances where there are genuine medical needs and medical concerns. But what is, this is like the, the, the student who comes in and says, the dog ate my homework or forges the doctor's note from their mother or when they get an F on their report card and their parents have to sign on, they forge the signature. Like it's all just phony bullshit and it's immature and it's amateur and we should all be coming together to support a healthy society. I'd have everybody listen to the Midas Touch podcast, um, which also have new episodes this week with Anthony Scaramucci. And Scaramucci broke down what exactly needs to take place. He's like, look, if you're a real Republican leader, you're talking to people and you're saying, listen, man, we're out here fighting a war. 
We're fighting a war against an invisible enemy and we need your help to win that war. And we need to come together so you can have all of your freedoms. We're with you. You should have these freedoms. But to get those freedoms, we need to destroy this. I, I saw a stat today, which was shocking, but they, they think in the next three months, 60%, 60% of the American population will have had COVID, including Omicron, in their lifetime. Six zero. I wouldn't be surprised if it's already at that, Popak, because the testing, you know, in places like New York is high, but in Florida, they treat COVID like the cold um, and they misreport data of deaths. And so you just don't really know. Popak, this podcast is brought to you by Fiverr. And you and I love Fiverr because it's it's hard to make something out of nothing. We know that more than ever at Midas Touch, where the thought of turning a big idea into reality can feel overwhelming. And so how do you even get started? And so when we have our ideas, whether it's doing a movie, edit, photography, um, holiday cards, uh, music jingles, whatever it is, we look to Fiverr as one of our major resources so that we could find this database of millions of freelancers across the globe who help clients like me turn ideas into successful realities every day. Experts in data, design, marketing, technology, website building, music, video animation, and so much more are ready to help that's what you do. You simply search for the service you need and set the timeline and price you want. Fiverr will provide a list of freelancers who meet your criteria, browse their portfolios, read their reviews, and know exactly what you will pay before ordering anything. It is a simple to use platform with great customer service and qualified freelancers in every field. Every successful something was once nothing. Head to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R.com and turn nothing into something today. Here's the deal. Receive 10% off your first order by using my code, our code, my code. Like everything is our. It's me and you. We're a team. Legal AF at Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R.com. Again, that's Fiverr.com slash legal a F. I love Fiverr. You know, you know, you know what? Ho- you know what holiday gift you gave me for our our um, Christmas episode that you wait, did wait, all wait. of the ad reads. That's a good. <laughs> that's a good. Gift. I'm gonna pull my weight in the new year. I promise. I like it. And the gift I gave you, Popak, most of all, was really the Popokian name. Like forever, like that, there was no pre-plan of that. I never had called you Popokian before. Um, I, If you've noticed, and maybe our Midas Touch Legal AFers have noticed, I've harped less on the Popokianness and kind of that stuff over time. I'm going to bring it back from time to time. But there was getting a lot of comments, and I talked about this on the Brother podcast. There's been an overwhelming tide of some anti-Ben sentiment on both the brother podcast and on our comments. I wasn't wasn't sure where you were going with that. Okay, go. And I try to read 
the comments and I shouldn't, but I also want to tailor it. The people were saying, we really like the legal analysis, but enough of this Popokian stuff and whatever. And so I've toned it down. I'm bringing it out a little bit just for this Christmas episode, but I, I, I think the those name are, sticks. haters it are going to, haters are going to hate, but I, I'm going to, I'm here. I'm going to, uh, you surprise me with that. I'm going to surprise you. The, the gift that you have, the, the gift that you have given me, which is, which is a gift that keeps giving is not only your friendship, but the friendship that I've developed with your brothers, and by extension, the friendship that I've developed with the Midas Mighty. That is a gift that I never saw coming. I mean, your friendship, I, I did, because we've been friends for a long time. <laughs> but but, but <laughs> I, never, I, never thought it, I never thought it would last, man. But, but the, the, the Jordan, my relationship with Jordy, my, my relationship with Brett, my relationship with Salty, who's producing with us today. And then this, this broader, um, network that you, a community, that's a better word, that you and your brothers have created and I've contributed to. And now the other podcasts that you spot, that you promote and that you produce. Um, I never envisioned that. And the other thing that I've told people gives me so much gratitude and satisfaction is I never thought I'd be involved with something that would provide a safe space for people, many of them having never been involved with politics or legal issues before to express their opinions in a safe, in a safe space. And, and the fact that I can contribute even this much, small fingers just a little bit apart, to that, that's how I describe the value of what I do and why you and I do this five to 10 hours a week, you more because of the Brothers Podcast. And, and if I ever, my energy ever flags, I, that, that is what I think on that we're providing a public service that our followers and listeners really appreciate. And there isn't a replacement for it anywhere else in the podcast or social media universe. You know, I've thought through the label, you know, progressive and, you know, Midas Touch is a progressive pack. I've thought through the label pro-democracy, you know, and we embody all of their views, but truthfully at its core from a value standpoint. I mean, you know, I think we work really hard. I mean, preparing for these podcasts takes a really long time. Producing them, we have a great production team who puts these podcasts on um, with Salty and, and Jordy. You know, they do an incredible job. Um, but from a values perspective, it's not even about Democrat, Republican, independent, or what have you. Like to me, what the Midas Touch journey was all about was just really being a good person to kind of calling out bullies and just trying in a world with all this negativity that's out there, just trying to spread love. Those views align themselves with Democrats right now. That's why I'm a Democrat. Um, there's no other major political party. I mean, we're a two-party system, but that's even close. Like I see these images with the Christmas cards of Republican Representative Massey and Lauren Boebert with their children holding assault weapons in front of a Christmas tree right after a school shooting. And that's not normal. That's not okay behavior in the United States of America or anywhere in the world. I want to associate myself with a political party, with friends like you, Michael, with community like the Midas Mighty, who say that is wrong. 
and call that type of conduct out. I don't want to hang and roll with the Marjorie Taylor Greens who are stalking individuals who barely survived from high schools that, that were subject to school shootings and claim that they are actors and they are lying and allow a Republican party to look like at a Marjorie Taylor Greene you know, and Lauren Boebert's and hoist them up when Lauren Bobber talks about, makes jokes calling other members of Congress terrorists. This conduct is unacceptable anywhere in the United States of America, and we need to call it out. And how does that segue into the law and what we're talking about here in Midas Touch Legal AF? One of the reasons we want to empower you with all of this is that knowledge is power as well. You know, the law is one of the most significant levers of accountability. And it shouldn't surprise you that a lot of these people who engage in this horrible, heinous public conduct that I've described also skirt our laws and rules, and they think they're immune to it. And the Republican Party currently thinks they're immune to it. And they're the ones chanting law and order, law and order this, law and order that. But at the end of the day, they don't give a shit about law and order. And we talked earlier in the podcast about the insurrectionists. And, you know, when one of the insurrectionists was finally confronted um, and he was uh, questioned about all of his comments, I mean, you know, what this individual had discussed, you know, he talked about he was celebrating how he, you know, harmed the blue or whatever he called it, attacked the blue and celebrated destroying the police officers. Like, we have important symbols in the United States, you know, and important things, you know, you know, police is important, you know, religion is important to families, our flag is important, the Constitution is important, all of these things are important, but we have to really believe in them and we have to really try to make those things actually work. And on the other hand, you have the Republicans who host hoist all those things up. Back the blue. Here's the flag of America, the Constitution, religion. And they use them as symbols to engage in their misconduct and to justify their bad acts. So I'll stop with that rant on Christmas and we can talk very briefly and finally about Michael Cohen. Um, but I wanted to make sure I just got that off my chest. No, I, listen, I, I, you, you say rants. I mean, the, if we if we eliminated ranting from our podcast, I think we we wouldn't have a podcast left. So there, there's there's two there's two Trump related suits. Uh, it's up to you. You want to talk about the? Oh, good. why don't you talk about Trump first? And you know, and I think we do short shrift on it because it's a really dumb lawsuit against Tish James. <laughs> All right. I mean, it, it it really is beneath contempt. Yeah. So, but why don't you briefly yeah, touch and, on and, it and, and, and talk about Michael Cohen? Yeah, then we can do. My, then we can end today with Michael Cohen tonight with Michael Cohen. So you know, let's start with how this starts. Um, Trump having run out and exhausted the supply of legitimate lawyers and law firms, and you know, kind of preeminent constitutional scholars is left with a three lawyer firm in Bedminster, New Jersey, near his golf course. And whenever he wants to file one of what I call a public relations stunt masquerading as a lawsuit, he goes to this little firm and I think he like writes it himself or they help him write it and they file it. 
And, you know, they file here in the Northern District of New York, which is towards upstate New York to try to get a more favorable judge. And what they're trying to do is to cut the legs out from under the Attorney General for the state of New York, Letitia James, and try to argue that she's so biased, that she's so against them, that she's so um, committing prosecutorial misconduct by continuing to investigate him and the Trump organization, which by the way, has already led to two convictions. Because remember, the, the Letitia James's New York Attorney General's office is working hand in glove with Cy Vance, soon to be Alvin Bragg's Manhattan District Attorney Office. They're, the Manhattan DA is taking the lead on the prosecutor side. Uh, the New York Attorney General's office is taking the lead on the civil side and they're sharing investigators and information and overlapping. So, uh, you know, that alone, the fact that already two members of the Trump organization, the CFO and the CAO have already been indicted or, or the brother-in-law of the CFO have already been in, in, uh, indicted speaks volumes. But this was just, he's not getting enough attention. He wants to try to pillory and attack Tish James in the public fora for his own fundraising purposes. So he gets this little tiny firm who operates out of a WeWork or a Regis uh, office uh, complex, I looked them up, here in New York to file this lawsuit to stop her the New York Attorney General from continuing to investigate him or prosecute him because she's got a vendetta against him. This case is going to die. There is no sitting federal judge that's going to enjoin the New York Attorney General from continuing to investigate. Now, having said that, do I personally think that the New York Attorney General talks a little bit too much about how she wants to go after Trump and all the lawsuits that she's brought against him in a little bit of a self-aggrandizing way? I do. If Merrick Garland is attacked for not saying a word about what he is doing behind the scenes against the, Trump, the former Trump administration and its officials, Tish James is sort of on the other extreme where, you know, there's not a news appearance, news conference, press conference, podcast, late night appearance, uh, you know, with Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel or any of them, where she doesn't brag about the notches on her belt going after the Trump administration. She could, frankly, tone it down a bit. Does it cross the line into prosecutorial misconduct and bias so that she has to step down from doing all investigations against Trump? Not on your life. And Trump knows it. That's why he can't get a, like a real firm to file the suit. He gets this little firm in his town to go do it for him. He gets a two days of media coverage related to it, and then it'll disappear. And she'll continue with her efforts and all of her investigators in conjunction with the district attorney of Manhattan to try to bring down that organization and its and its uh, officers and directors, including the children and Trump. What do you think? I think of the show billions right with yeah. the kind of prosecutor and the billionaire and they're both like really 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 smart and they make these like very intricate moves against each other this is not one of those <laughs> it's not that episode <laughs> this is not one of those intricate moves but in many ways you know when you think about how uh the big lie um as especially as that was known, you know, with Nazism, you know, a small lie, you know, fails, but a big lie can travel around the world and people were more likely to believe a big lie than a small lie. You know, the big lie that we have 
um, that Donald Trump spread about the election, but the audacity of his approach of doing things that are completely insane, like filing these lawsuits that aren't legitimate lawsuits. It's a version of like, it's a big fraud on everybody. And it's so big and the stuff is so crazy um, and has no precedent in anything that Trump is actually trying to lose the case. Like that's what you should realize. Trump knows he has zero chance of winning the case. The case is not, and I'm talking about the civil lawsuit, the injunction that he's filed against it. He has no chance of winning that. He wants to lose. And then he'll blame the judge. And then he'll blame Tish James. Right. He'll blame the legal system. And he'll raise and he'll $10 million. Everybody. Exactly. Every lawsuit, he'll make 10 or 15 million in fundraising related to it, or the RNC will, which gives him power to try to select the next round of senators and congressmen. You know, he, he's as crazy as a fox when it comes to self-aggrandizement and commercializing, if you will, his name and his name brand. We laugh at his brand, but in his world of the 45% or more of America that still thinks he should be the president of the United States, he, he, he has found a way to turn his craziness into cash. You said, you said before, it's the audacity of, of, of whatever. Obama used to call it the audacity of hope. This guy, it's the audacity of dope. But in his world, he, is, he remains king. And for every crazy lawsuit, it's just ka-ching. It's just another... Hey, we're, what, what, what do the coffers look like in my political action committee? Oh, we're down. We need another 10 million fundraise. Great. Get that little firm to file that lawsuit. Let's collect money off of it. Opak, spot on. Now let's talk about Michael Cohen's new lawsuit against the DOJ. Let's talk about the timing of the lawsuit because the Trump administration is also no longer in power, um, but it is nonetheless against Trump administration officials like um, Bill Barr, um, you know, and this lawsuit and the alleges, Bureau of Prisons and the and the current Bureau of Prisons, yeah, and it alleges a retaliatory arrest. So, po so Popa Cohen was released on, um, you know, when people were being released from their sentences because of COVID, um, and so he was under house arrest while he was serving his term. He shows back up to court and basically doing his normal paperwork. And as he shows up filling out his regular paperwork, they basically say, you need to sign this non-disclosure agreement um, that says you can't talk at all. Yeah, probation, about anything related probation to Donald services do it. Probation services hand this yeah. to him. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? And give Cohen credit. You know, Cohen's like, I'm not signing this document. I'm not waiving my right to write a book or talk on a podcast, the Maya Culpa podcast with Midas Touch or do anything like that. Like you can't take that right away from me. And they threw him in jail. They threw yeah. him in jail. Yeah, they, revoked, and, you know, they, they revoked his home. So look, Michael Cohen is a fascinating character that we of course support here at Midas, at the Midas Touch Legal AF for many, many reasons, including he's a fellow podcaster in the family. But, and I've met Michael on a, a number of occasions. Um, we're in the same neighborhood here on, on, in, the, in New York. But Michael served, you know, Michael served his time. He had a three-year sentence for tax evasion, campaign finance violation. And um, also, as we talked about earlier tonight in the podcast, lying to Congress. That was, that was one of his charges. And he, 
you know, he was a year or so into his sentence, the pandemic hit, he along with thousands and thousands of other white collar, nonviolent people were let out of their cages, let out of their prison cells, and allowed to finish their term on home confinement. Well, while he was home, he, he was writing a memoir. It's been published. He was working on his podcast. And he went in, as you said, to like fill out paperwork to continue his home confinement. And all of a sudden, the, the probation department, combined with the Bureau of Prisons, says, you got to sign here on the dotted line. You can't, you can't be, we got to gag you. You're not going to be able to exercise your First Amendment rights while you're out on home confinement. And he said, absolutely not. And they literally took him away that moment in handcuffs back to jail. It's right. The guy thinks he's going home to finish his term that afternoon. He's instead got to call family and said, I'm in handcuffs heading back to federal detention center and back to serve my term. So look, he sued the Trump. He sued Trump personally a couple of times. He lost recently. I think we touched on it. He tried to get his attorney's fees paid by the Trump organization under an agreement. Some judge in New York said, no, we're not finding that agreement against the Trump organization. You might have had it with Trump personally or somebody else. So he didn't get his attorney's fees. Now he's suing for intentional infliction of emotional distress and other violations of his uh, First Amendment rights and constitutional rights, seeking damages against Bill Barr, the then attorney general, Trump, the Trump Organization, and the Bureau of Prisons, which is an existing organization now. Now, he's got one thing, which is a really good thing, in his favor for this lawsuit. When, he, when that happened to him and he went to jail, back to prison, he actually got released again. He went before a federal judge, Alvin Hellerstein, here in Manhattan, in July of 2020 or, or so, and Judge Hellerstein sided with Michael and decided that, that the Bureau of Prisons and Probation had improperly retaliated against Michael Cohen because he was about to uh, publish a memoir that was gonna be unflattering to the, to the president at the time, Donald Trump. And that's a finding of that, that the federal judge made using that finding and he got released. He got sent back to home confinement to finish his term. Using that finding, which I think is half the battle, Michael's now going to try to sue and say, I should not have been made a political prisoner in retaliation by a president. He should not be able to use the Bureau of Prisons and the probation department as, as, as a, as a uh, club against his political adversaries. I'm not sure he's wrong about that. What do you think, Ben? Cohen's 100% right. This is yeah. an absurd situation. And why this uh, lawsuit... Um, is incredibly important. And I think more important than just Michael Cohen filing a lawsuit. And this was broken down by MSNBC, you know, following uh, Cohen's interview with Rachel Maddow about the situation is this is one of the steps of a despot, throwing your political enemies in jail and utilizing the Bureau of Prisons and utilizing all that to squelch free speech is something that is so anathema to what we stand for in the United States of America. And again, this is why, let this episode go full circle as we close. This is why the judiciary though is so important, you know, and having judges who are qualified. They're gonna always be presidents from different political parties. But one of the things that Trump tried to do in his administration 
was to appoint unqualified judges and succeeded in a lot of sense of pushing people who bipartisan groups said these judges were entirely unqualified to be judges, but having qualified, respected lawyers as judges, and this judge in this case said, you know what, in 21 years of being a judge, I have never ever even seen anything close to this happen and called the Trump administration out on this and, and ended, you know, and made those findings that you talked about. And now Cohen is filing his lawsuit. Now the question is, is the, is the, Biden administration going to try to step in because they don't like the precedent, uh, P-R-E-C, precedent of having this kind of lawsuit, um, even if even if it has merits, sort of what they did with, uh, with, with E. Jean Carroll. We'll have to see. Right now, they haven't tried to intervene. No one's made that argument. Bureau of Prisons may, somebody may. But I think you're right on the merits, especially with, with the federal judge sending him back to home confinement, finding retaliation. I think he's got the makings of a good suit. You're right. It, it was a good interview that he gave with Rachel Maddow. And a good interview that Michael Cohen is going to be giving with the Midas Touch brothers. Michael Cohen will be featured in a two-part Midas Touch special over the holidays. Um, and so make sure you have watched the Michael Cohen, or will be watching the Michael Cohen Midas Touch interviews with myself, Brett, and Jordy. Michael Popak, always a pleasure to spend these times with you to do Legal AF. I want to give a special thanks to all of our great sponsors um, from BetterHelp to Fiverr to Calibrate. Make sure you use those Legal AF codes so you can get all those incredible discounts that we talked about during the show. And look, we know it's the holidays. We appreciate that you're even here watching. And for those listening, um, the law doesn't stop. Neither does Popak and Ben Micellis. We appreciate all of your time and we will see you next week on Midas Touch Legal AF. If it's Saturday, it's Legal AF. If it's Sunday, it is also Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.